0: The following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. The sermon this morning is the second in a sermon series entitled Old Words, New Life, Transformative Teachings from the Old Testament. One of the observations that we make in disciple Bible study is that you really have to understand the Old Testament in order to rightly understand the New. We also observe a Disciple that while the Old Testament may seem old, it actually has themes that correspond quite directly with many major issues and life experiences of today. We will see that in the Old Testament scriptures that we are considering this morning. Let's be for a moment in the spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Does it bother you that so much evil goes on in the world and evildoers often seem to just get away with it? Tyrannical rulers stay in power, criminal gangs keep operating, people who exploit others keep exploiting. Meanwhile, While the bad people in the world are living comfortably with all the trappings of wealth and power, good people very often are struck by misfortune and suffering. If you are disturbed by that reality, your concern is expressed in the Bible, in a passage that was written almost three millennia ago. In Psalm 73, the psalmist laments the prosperity of the wicked. He sees wrongdoers in his society, for whom everything is going just swimmingly. As he goes on to say, they have no pain, their bodies are sound and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not plagued like other people, their eyes swell out with fatness, their hearts overflow with follies, such are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. This vexes him to no end. As he says, I was envious of the arrogant. We may likewise be disturbed when wrongdoers are on easy street, while some good people we know are having tough times. The psalmist relates that he really struggled with this, as he says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, until I went into the sanctuary of God. It is in the presence of God that we can gain insight into the major questions of life. What the psalmist perceived was that over all the twists and turns of life, and over all the actions that people do for good or ill, there is finally a judge on high. God is at work to ultimately carry out God's righteousness. With regard to evildoers, that means that a day of reckoning is coming. As the psalmist said to the Lord, surely you set them in slippery places so that they fall to ruin. We saw a striking contemporary example of that just in the past couple of weeks as the court judgment finally came upon Ghislaine Maxwell. For years, Jeffrey Epstein, assisted by Ghislaine Maxwell, exploited and abused countless young women continuing all the while to live an extravagant luxury. But the words of the psalm proved true as judgment came crashing down. Maxwell was sentenced a week and a half ago to 20 years in prison, which means most or all of the rest of her life. Epstein, of course, already ended his own life, thus bringing himself very quickly before the far greater judgment of God. He became a stark example of the statement of Jesus, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Throughout the Bible, there is a steady theme that every individual stands finally under the ultimate judge on high. God, however, does not desire to condemn human beings, but rather to redeem us. The whole biblical narrative tells the story of God's outreach to humanity, culminating in Jesus Christ. As it is said in the Gospel of John, God sent His Son not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. We are urged then to receive God's saving grace, extended to us through Jesus Christ, so that wherever we are in life, whatever our own shortfalls may have been, we may know God's forgiveness and God's power to enable us to journey rightly in life and to experience God's everlasting blessing. With regard to those in this world who persist in evil, Psalm 73 would counsel us not to let ourselves get bitter or resentful. In the latter part of the psalm, the psalmist reflects about how he had gotten so worked up about the prosperity of the wicked, and he says, when my soul was embittered, I was stupid and ignorant." There is some, some real honest self-reflection. The psalmist realizes that we should simply let God be the judge, trusting that God's justice will unfold in time. For his own part, the psalmist perceives that we each need to focus on our own relationship with God, and we will find our fulfillment and our eternal future as we entrust our lives to God. Moreover, we need to reach out to others with the message of God's grace and saving power. So he says to the Lord in conclusion, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire other than you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73 focuses on the relationship between the individual and God. But there's also a strong message in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, that God is judge over nations. We saw this in the passage we heard this morning from the book of the prophet Obadiah. You never hear much about Obadiah, partly because his book is short, only 21 verses. And those verses mostly pronounce condemnation on the nation of Edom, a nation that no longer exists. And yet the message of Obadiah has much relevance for today as it addresses a problem that we commonly see, that some nations engage in evil and seem to get away with it. In Obadiah's day in the 6th century BC, Edom was a nation adjacent to Israel to the southeast in what now constitutes southern Jordan. The Edomites and the Israelites were ethnically related. The Israelites were the descendants of Jacob, while the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, and thus they had a common ancestry. But things turned sour when the people of Israel, living in the land of Judah, were attacked by the Babylonian Empire. In the midst of that crisis, Edom sided with Babylon, taking advantage of Judah's demise. For a time, Edom profited off of Judah's ruin. But Obadiah declared that God's judgment was coming. I will surely make you least among the nations, was the word of the Lord toward Edom. You shall be utterly despised. Obadiah went on, Your proud heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, whose dwelling is in the heights. The reference here is to the area around Petra, which was in Edom, southern Jordan today. Although the most famous structures in Petra date from the Greco-Roman period later, in the days of Edom, the region was really quite prosperous and the capital of Edom was close to Petra, where people lived in dwellings that they had carved out of the face of the rock. The Edomites thought that they were on top of things. But Obadiah said that they would be judged for turning against their kin in Israel and acting disgracefully. As he declared, For the slaughter and violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. On the day that you stood aside, on the day that strangers carried off its wealth and foreigners entered its gates, the description of the Babylonian sack of Jerusalem, you too were one of them. But you should not have gloated over your brother on the day of his misfortune. You should not have entered the gate of my people on the day of their calamity. You should not have stolen their goods on the day of calamity. You should not have stood at the crossings to cut off the fugitives." All this describing Edom's complicity with the Babylonian invasion. Obadiah concluded that there would be a reckoning. As you have done, he declared, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. His words proved absolutely true. A few years after Obadiah declared this vision, Babylon turned on Edom, conquered and ravaged the country, and Edom as a nation vanished forever from the face of the earth. Later the Babylonian Empire itself, which had devastated many peoples in its empire-building rampage, disappeared from the face of the earth. There's nothing left of Babylon except some ruins under the sands of Iraq. As Obadiah put it, nations shall be as though they had never been. Obadiah proclaims that for nations, as well as for individuals, there is a judge on high. The themes of Obadiah relate directly to what is happening right now in Ukraine. Russians are kinsfolk with Ukrainians sharing a common ancestry, but we are dismayed to witness the present brutal invasion. Week after week, the Russian military commits atrocities, seemingly with no end. But Obadiah reminds us that God reigns over all, and his words resonate with regard to the present Russian leadership. For the slaughter and violence done to your brethren Shame shall cover you. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head." The Bible affirms that since God has given human beings freedom, people can choose to do evil, sometimes apparently getting away with it for a long time. But the Bible also affirms that God's justice will ultimately bring a due recompense on societies as well as on individuals. As it is said in the New Testament letter of Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. As one sows, so one will reap. At the same time, for societies as well as for individuals, God is not simply sitting back waiting to pass judgment. God is at work for redemption. That means that For societies, God is at work to bring societies out of wrong, to create truly good and just human community. Obadiah envisioned at the end of his book that God would reverse the evil that Babylon had done and would restore the people of Israel to the land of Judah, which in fact happened. And he envisioned a future in which God's righteousness would finally take hold in the whole land. The final verse of Obadiah says, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Obadiah would thus encourage us that in spite of evils in our time, God is at work to create justice. And we then, like Obadiah, are called to trust in God and to join in God's purposes. But how can we go about trying to create a just society around us today? Sometimes churches have wanted to think, that we should simply concentrate on the individual, that the way to create a just society is to enforce rules of personal behavior. This was the approach of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They had all sorts of rules to regulate individual behavior, and they thought that this was the pathway to a righteous society. Now you do, of course, have to enforce some rules of personal behavior in order to have a well-functioning society. You need rules against stealing, against bribery, traffic rules, and so forth. But there are serious limitations with this common approach. The first problem is that even if you can get individuals behaving well, even if you have a lot of moral individuals, you do not necessarily end up with a moral society. A century ago, Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the prominent uh, theologians of the 20th century, pointed this out in his classic book, Moral Man and Immoral Society. He observed that you can have a society full of decent moral individuals who still end up behaving in evil ways as an entire society. A prime contemporary example of this is Russia today. Lots of people in Russia are believers, active in the Russian Orthodox Church, especially, and very likely if you were to go visit most Russian families in their homes, they would be very, very nice to you. And yet, as a society, they are broadly supporting a totally evil invasion of their neighbors in Ukraine. There are many other historical examples of the same phenomenon of moral individuals, immoral society, in the American South, For a century after the Civil War, lots of very nice church-going white folks vehemently supported a segregated, very unjust society. The problem is that good individuals often fail to see how they are part of large-scale evils in their society. A second problem with the individual rule-following approach is that that when righteous believers try to set rules for people, they easily get confused about what rules ought to be enforced. Often people draw the rules more from their own cultural background than from the scriptures. When I was growing up, a lot of churches had rules against drinking, dancing, and card playing. None of those rules had any biblical basis whatsoever, and trying to press them on people brought no good result. Efforts to enforce a drinking ban, for example, across the country during Prohibition were a disaster. A third major problem with the enforcing rules approach is that rules cannot account for complex moral situations. Right now, a number of states are adopting simplistic rules on abortion. But there are numerous pregnancies where there are difficult and complex circumstances in which people need to engage in sometimes agonizing moral discernment in order to determine what is truly the right course of action. A very recent example in Ohio is the young girl who was a rape victim who discovered at 10 years of age that she was pregnant. She was barred from any abortion in Ohio because by the time she went to a doctor, she was just past the six week mark beyond which Ohio has now banished all, all abortion. She went instead to Indiana. It's notable that last weekend, hundreds of physicians from across Northeast Ohio protested in Cleveland against Ohio's abortion law. Those physicians are people who are involved very directly in some of the serious complexities in many pregnancies. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I have a book on this subject in process. What is most notable in this regard is the shape of Jesus' action in the face of difficult ethical questions. Jesus produced some of his most memorable critiques when he confronted Pharisees who were trying to enforce simple rules in complex circumstances. Concerning the Sabbath, for example, with the principle that you should take time away from work. The Pharisees said that on the Sabbath day, you simply must not do anything that in any way constitutes work. And this rule, they insisted, needed to be be straightforwardly and rigorously applied. When Jesus' disciples plucked some grain on the Sabbath, or when Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, activities that the Pharisees considered work, they responded with harsh condemnation. But Jesus pointed out that morality is much more than rule following. Morality involves doing the authentically good and loving thing in each situation, which may entail some deep moral discernment. As He said to the Pharisees, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Finally, the idea that you can create a good society by enforcing rules of individual behavior does not work because injustice in a society very often involves whole systems or structures that are unjust. Three prime examples unfolded just in the past week and a half in Akron the shooting of Jalen Walker occasioned considerable unrest, not only because of the case itself, where you could perhaps debate the rightness or wrongness of specific police actions, but because the case relates to a long history in which African Americans have continually experienced unjust treatment in many ways. Racial injustice has to be addressed on a social scale because it involves a whole web of twisted attitudes, problematic laws, and long-standing social structures. In Chicago, a few days later, 4th of July celebrations were grievously derailed by a mass shooting with multiple deaths and serious injuries. The problem of gun violence is another issue that has to be addressed on a social scale, which our Congress at least tentatively acknowledged in the recent gun law. Also in the news in recent days have been a series of extreme events caused by climate change. At Lake Mead, a sunken boat that once was 185 feet beneath the surface has now emerged as the water level in ongoing dryness just keeps on shrinking. In Italy last Sunday, a long-standing glacier high in the Alps collapsed due to the warming weather killing several people. In the American West, wildfires are raging. Again, we can only effectively address the problem of climate change on a social and world scale. Here the biblical prophets are a powerful spiritual resource because they continually declared that sin involves not just individuals behaving badly, but whole societies behaving in wrongful ways. To create a just society, therefore, we need to engage ourselves on a large scale, to be instruments of change, to be advocates for justice, and to be witnesses for God's righteousness in the world. Jesus put it well when he said, woe to you Pharisees, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, referring to tiny details of personal piety but you've neglected the weightier matters, justice and mercy and faith. Jesus thus stands squarely, as we might expect, in the tradition of the prophets, calling us to be at work, not only for the redemption of the individual, but for the reformation of society. Our United Methodist Church has a mission statement that is exactly in line with that call. Our declared mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. So, in the face of the many troubles of our time, we invite people to enter a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, which will inspire and empower us, not only to trust in God's righteousness, but to join in God's work to transform our society and our world. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we recognize that you are the judge on high and we take hold of that wondrous news that you are acting not for our condemnation, but for our salvation, that you are reaching to us with grace, with uplifting power, seeking to draw us away from ways that would ruin us and ruin our world leading us into the life that we have with you and the kind of life that we can have with one another. Lord, inspire us as we would respond in faith as we open our lives to your transforming power in us as we share then in how your transforming power can be at work through us in the world at large. We thank you, Lord, that you draw us into the life of the church so that together we can grow in faith and reach out more effectively into our world and mission we do lift up persons in our fellowship in times of particular challenge, remembering those who are sick, praying particularly for Morgan Kloss, Carl Crawford, Jessica Bennett, Karen Andrews, and Bruce Hansford, praying Lord for your healing power. We also lift up our fellow United Methodists at the Apple Creek United Methodist Church, rejoicing that we are part of a larger church family in which we can truly join together in an effective mission to our world Lord, inspire us in the face of the evils of our time to look to you, to have that confidence that you are ever at work, and move us, O Lord, then to join with you, to share in how your good news, your love, and your grace can flow through our lives. Inspire us as we become instruments of your justice and your peace in our time, and as we continue to trust in you and lift you the praise. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, and Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.